You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor, and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, and uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight the man was startled, and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now, It is true that I am a Redeemer, yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you then, as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing, and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley, and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 717 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, September 21st, 2023, and Ruth and Boaz are well on their way. (laughs) You will not have heard the previous episode where we talked about Ruth chapter 2, unless you are a subscriber, or it's the month of October 2023 and after. So, Be a subscriber, sign up for 99 cents a month. You also can get the subscriber-only episodes in the month that they come out. That will be every third episode if you're keeping track. And you won't want to miss in sequence, I don't think, and then have to go back. But it's up to you. It's up to you. They will be available to all regardless of your subscription status. 
eventually, right? Eventually, once the month has passed where I recorded and published them, then you can listen to them for free. But nevertheless, what you missed, or I'll recap in Ruth chapter two, is that Ruth goes out to get some food. She's going to go and get to work and she's going to glean in the fields and follow after the men who are reaping the grain. And she happens to, what good luck, what good fortune, or providence, as is most certainly the case, she happens to glean in the field of a man named Boaz, who is a close relative, as Naomi tells Ruth when she gets home. And this is a good thing because Boaz is an honorable man. He's a good man. He's a decent man. He's an honest man. He's a man of integrity. And Boaz notices this young woman, Ruth, and asks about her, makes introductions, talks with her, gives instructions for her to be protected and to be provided for. And he praises her. He encourages her. He gives her an invitation to eat at the table and break bread and dip the bread in the wine. Boaz is an honorable man. And then when Ruth gets home and tells Naomi about everything that's happened, then it comes out that, you know what, you should just stay in Boaz's field because if you go to another field, you may be assaulted. But if you stay in his field, you'll be protected. You'll be safe. Now, what's curious in part is if Naomi knew Boaz's field was a good one to go to on the front end, you might have expected Naomi to tell Ruth, hey, listen, don't go to any other field, go to Boaz's field. But it's been a minute, right? It's been years since they moved away from Bethlehem and now they've moved back. And who knows what kind of man Boaz is anymore. People change, things change. Lots of things that were thought to be secure and you could count on them have not turned out to be such for Naomi, like her husband's untimely death, her sons, both of them dying, and we don't know why they died, but If she was expecting and just assuming that her sons were going to take care of her in her old age after her husband passed on, she couldn't assume that once they passed on, once they also died. And so maybe Boaz was thought to be a good man, a good character before, and now she just doesn't even know what can be counted on anymore. But once she hears about the good treatment that Boaz has given to Ruth and instructed his people to give to Ruth, Naomi says, stay in his field. Don't go to any other field. Stay in Boaz's field, lest you be assaulted. But then we come to Ruth chapter 3, and there is the hatching of a plot. (laughs) But it's a good plot, right? It's a good plan. There's intentionality here. This isn't just scheming in any kind of a nefarious way, but this is intentionality. And this is Naomi playing matchmaker now. Because what Naomi realizes is possible based on how Boaz has responded to Ruth, what's possible here is that Boaz may just be willing to redeem not just the property, but marry Ruth. As in Ruth, because of her ties by marriage to the family, would also come with the property. And you might say, oh, that's so, ugh. What's wrong with people that they would do things in that way? You know, there's a lot of wisdom in having the property and the family 
stay together because this is inheritance. This is inheritance for the people of Israel that's supposed to pass down from generation to generation. And this is how you don't have people being homeless. If they belong to the land and the land belongs to them, then they have cohesion, they have a sense of purpose and belonging, which is very important for there being a prosperous people, a prosperous country, and a blessed people. A blessed nation is comprised of individuals who are blessed and who are walking in the ways of God. And in this case, it's just what it is. You can like it, you can love it, you can hate it, you can feel indifferent about it. This is just what it was, that the woman would go along with the rest of the inheritance if she was a widow. So Naomi wants it to be Boaz. And maybe Naomi knows, maybe she doesn't know, that there's a closer kinsman than Boaz. But Boaz certainly knows it, and Boaz is going to do things properly. He's going to do things in order. And when Ruth turns out to be sleeping at his feet or lying down at his feet as he is sleeping, he is honest with her. And there's no indication of funny business. Some people might want to read that into this text, that there's something sexual going on. Certainly, there's the possibility. There's a lot of vulnerability, right? There's definitely occasion. If Boaz is not an honorable man, there's a lot of opportunity here for Ruth to be abused and mistreated. And who knows, right? How does Ruth know that she's not going into a situation where she's going to be abused? And yet she trusts Naomi, and Naomi trusts the character of Boaz. What's going to happen is going to happen, and... Boaz is going to be captivated by this. Why, right? Why is that? Well, it's the other side of the coin to this being a gesture of vulnerability. Ruth is very much a vulnerable woman and a damsel in distress. And this gesture of making herself vulnerable to Boaz is going to leave him smitten, quite simply. He recognizes that this is her making herself available to him, but he's going to do things in an honorable way, and he does things in an honorable way, and he praises her. And oh, by the way, it hasn't been stated to this point, but he's apparently not a young man. And he says as much or implies as much when he says, you could have gone after young men, right? You could have gone after a young man to be your new husband, and you didn't. And so he is feeling very much valued and honored that she would recognize him as being someone worth her time and attention in this way. But he says, there's one that is a closer kinsman than I am, and he has to have the first option at redeeming the inheritance. He has to have the first option. While Naomi and her husband and her sons were away in some other land, this land in Bethlehem was still their family's possession, their household's possession, now that they've come back and there is no man, and there aren't even any daughters, but there's a daughter-in-law, this is the way it's going to be done so that the land stays with the tribe, the clan, and the household. The kinsman is going to redeem the land, and he will take not just the benefits, he'll also take the responsibility. But then also somebody needs to take the benefits and the responsibility of having this woman, Ruth, who married into the family. And Boaz is willing to do it, as you'll find out, not to give anything away, as you'll find out the guy who is closer 
in relation, he's more closely related, is not interested. He probably would like the benefit, but he doesn't want the responsibility and he doesn't want to tie himself to Ruth, it would appear. But we'll get into that in due time. For right now, all you really have to know is that Naomi is playing matchmaker here and there is a tremendous amount of vulnerability that is very compelling to Boaz. This is a vulnerability that does carry with it some risk, but then that's the nature of it, right? That's the nature of the commitment that we make when we get married is you can't have intimacy without vulnerability. You can't have intimacy unless you open yourself up to this other person. But then that's the reason why you have to be careful who you make yourself vulnerable to, who you open yourself up to. Because if you pick the wrong person, they will hurt you, they will harm you, they will betray you instead of protecting you, loving you, and honoring you. That's one of the big takeaways here. Boaz is the right guy in part because He's not the kind of guy who's going to take advantage of this woman, but he is certainly a man still, right? He is definitely still a man. And it's not lost on him that he could take advantage of Ruth. He has every ability to. It's dark. Nobody knows. Who's to say, right? But what's his thought, right? How does he prove his value, his worth, his merit, his character? He doesn't take advantage of her, but he is going to to pursue a legitimate arrangement wherein he would redeem her and the property. Ruth's words to him are, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Which is to say, I will make myself vulnerable to you. Please take me under your provisional and protective authority. This is, in essence, a marriage proposal, after a fashion, but it's done very delicately. And if he can, he'll accept, but he doesn't make a hasty commitment that he's not necessarily going to be able to keep. So he's going to do things in order. And as Naomi says at the very end of the chapter, the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So he's going to have a sense of urgency, particularly if he did find Ruth very compelling and it was very tempting and it was very appealing. It was very attractive to take advantage of the opportunity there. He's going to get this settled. And this is not going to be a long engagement. (laughs) This is not a long engagement. Some couples, they get flack because they meet, they take an interest, they have a little bit of interaction, and then they want to get married. They get flack because, oh no, you should really get to know each other. Well, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. Where is that written? Right? Where is it written that you're going to have a better outcome if you take a long, long, long time to actually get married once you've decided that you're very interested in this person? Where is it written that that's going to lead to a better outcome? Here, it works out very well that they don't have a long engagement. This is going to be done and settled the day after. But that is to say also that honorable men, men of good character who recognize a woman of good character are not necessarily going to delay and wait and see if somebody else comes along, who's more interesting. No, no, no. Act now while supplies last. Carpe that diem. You're not getting any younger. But here's the catch. You need to know that you're a person of good character and that she is a person of good character and that you do have the means to provide and protect. Get that settled. Get that squared first. And when you say it, you need to mean it and you need to follow through and be faithful 
and be dependable. And she needs to know that you are a dependable chap. She needs to know if she's going to make herself vulnerable. And if she would accept a proposal from you, she needs to know that you are a man of your word and you are going to make good on the commitment to provide and protect. But if that's in place, great. What are you waiting for? (laughs) Don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. There are enough things in the world that are complicated, more complicated than they need to be. This does not have to be one of them. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it will be good. Lots of things can have their challenging parts, their difficult parts, and yet be very, very good. One thing that's not good is for the man to be alone. That's the very first thing that God says is not good for the man to be alone. Also, one thing that is good is when a man finds a wife. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And Paul says in the New Testament as well, I would that all were as I am, that is unmarried, single. But because there is so much temptation to sin in the world, every man should have his own wife. Every woman should have her own husband and they should serve one another in all the ways, right? All the ways that a husband can serve a wife and a wife can serve a husband. They should serve one another and take care of each other. That is a good thing. It's not just the absence of a bad thing, but it's a good thing. It's an honorable thing and we should honor it and we should encourage young people to honor it and to work hard to make it work. But enough about Ruth chapter three for right now. Let's get into some current events items pertaining to gender and sexuality and marriage. For starters, Joel Abbott over at Not The Bee has a piece up. As of two days ago, September 19th, the Babylon Bee released its Guide to Gender Today that will be sure to get you on a government watch list. Check it out. Here are some highlights. If you're confused about gender, you've picked up the right book. It's time for you to explore the wacky wild world of gender theory, and you just might discover yourself along the way. Join the writers of the satirical sensation, the Babylon Bee, as they walk you through the following ideas. What is a man? What is a woman? How to pick your gender? How to change genders? How to raise woke babies? (laughs) How to attract other genders? Sex versus gender identity? Incredible gender flags, fabulous sexual orientations, drag queen story hour, all 437 new genders, and more. Every page of this guide is jam-packed with 100% true facts delivered through fabulous illustrations, handy infographics, and of course, stick figures of all genders and orientations. Um, Yeah. So, about this. You can go too far, making light of all the nonsense regarding gender and sexuality. You can go too far, but for those who don't think we should ever joke about this because one, we may make light of something that's very, very serious, or for two, we are going to give needless offense to people who are just confused and hurting and they don't know what they don't know. Let me make a brief case, a brief argument for why it's good to make fun of these things. It goes like this. One, There are people who take this very, very seriously, and they demand that you be afraid of them, and you take everything that they say that's total nonsense and very destructive and very damaging and very wicked, very untrue, very seriously, and they want you to live in constant fear of their disapproval and their reprisals. Those people make up a lot of the talking heads, a lot of the tastemakers, a lot of the folks who moderate content and decide what voices are amplified, what voices actually get to speak publicly and be heard. 
insofar as they should not be taken seriously, their ideas are not true, and you shouldn't live in constant fear of them. Humor is one of the ways you can signal that you're not afraid of them. That's one of the ways. Within moderation, to a point, you should make fun of people who are insisting on being taken very seriously as they're behaving very badly and they're saying very untrue things and they're causing a lot of damage because they're making other people live in fear of them all the time. If you make fun of them, one, you may, yes, make them even angrier, even more frustrated. But for some, you might actually get them to reassess because they realize, you know what? Actually, this is ridiculous. This is absurd. And maybe the reason they were pretending that these things are real is because they're living in fear of somebody else who did this to them. And they didn't have the sense to not take it seriously because it's nonsense. So maybe you make fun and you actually do cause them to reevaluate and reassess. Maybe you break some tension that needs to be broken, needs badly to be broken because that tension is actually just fear. And you're saying, I'm not going to be afraid of you. I'm not afraid of this. I'm not afraid of offending you. This is nonsense. This is ridiculous. These are not serious ideas. We've become an unserious people. If this is what passes for reasoned discourse, civil discourse. No, you're being rude, by the way, to me. And that's the other reason to make fun, sometimes. Because actually, this is not appropriate for us to think of that person and their feelings and their potentially being offended as the standard. And yet we have. What about all the people who are offended at this being imposed in a draconian way in a very harsh way, in a very repressive and tyrannical way, what about all those people and their being offended? Maybe making fun, sometimes strategically, puts the shoe on the other foot and communicates that, hey, listen, you know what? I'm actually offended. I'm offended at how absurd and ridiculous this is. If you'll laugh with me, then let's laugh and let's move on and let's have a reasonable conversation. But if you won't laugh with me, if you're just going to get really, really angry and expose how easily offended you are and how selfish you are and how not true your reasons are, that this is all just predicated on the threats of reprisals. If we don't agree, if we don't concede, well, then maybe that's also beneficial for other people who are still undecided to see and to understand. I think another reason, one more reason to make fun is so that we ourselves are not being super tense. Maybe the other person doesn't laugh. Maybe they're not persuaded. Maybe they are really angry. Maybe they get really angry and really offended. But if we're cracking a joke here and there in good taste, maybe we are even just that much more being a little calmer, a little less angry, a little less fearful so that we can say and do what is true and good and not cave. And not give in to some temptation to be poorly behaved in a worse way. There's nothing in all of the Bible that says we have to pretend that people being very dishonorable are every bit as honorable as the ones who are doing what is honorable. And this is one of the ways that American evangelicalism has gone astray that we say, well, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and so we're not going to recognize any distinction between those who are doing what is good and those who are doing what is evil. We're going to treat everybody like a total reprobate, or we're going to treat all of the total reprobates like they are good, upstanding, outstanding people. We're, we're going to talk to them with the same level of respect that we would 
talk about their ideas with the same level of dignity and decorum that we would, very serious ideas. And all the while, what's being lost is that we're not drawing a distinction based on wisdom and folly. We're not drawing a distinction based on righteousness and wickedness. Therefore, we're exchanging bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, and we're being lukewarm. If making a joke or even publishing a satirical book can help us to not exchange bitter for sweet and not exchange the truth of God for a lie, if it can help us in that regard, then I would say generally it's within the bounds. And hopefully the execution is on point. But some examples, some sample pages and graphics are shared from this book, not to be helpfully with the assist for the Babylon Bee. We have a cartoonish illustration of Rachel Levine, so-called, with a quote, I am a woman, known biological male, Rachel Levine. (laughs) Yes, I am a woman. No, you're not. That's a lie, right? You're not a woman. You're a liar. That would be more appropriate for us to call you that and to call you to repentance of being a liar. And also, oh, by the way, you putting on women's clothing and identifying as a woman, even though you are a man, is an abomination to God. And you should just know that. You should just be aware that God says this is abominable and we can't affirm it. We will not affirm it. No, you're not a woman. You're a liar. Your preferred pronoun is apparently liar because you're lying. Moving on down, there are some other screenshots, which I won't get into, but here we have one that I will share with you. 373 genders is the title on the page. Flavors, man, woman, agender, bigender, cisgender, demiboy, genderal tsao's chicken, non-binary, and yodel boy. These are just a few of the examples that are listed along with descriptions. Man, one of the two classic genders, men have many toxic and problematic traits, but we'll talk about that a little later. Woman, one of the two classic genders, women are strong and powerful and run the world, but are also helpless victims of oppression. Also, men can be women. More on that later. Uh, Agender, one who identifies as having no gender. Bigender, a person who has two genders. These genders can be male and female or any combination of genders, including agender, which is no gender. So you can simultaneously have two genders while also having no gender plus another gender. Pretty cool, huh? (laughs) Makes no sense. It makes no sense and it's not supposed to make any sense because the whole thing is just a prop. It's just a wedge to drive you to more and more leftism, to give one more excuse for legal plunder, as Bastiat would say. This is all just a prop. It's just a wedge. It's just a lever of power to get more political power, to get more money that doesn't belong to the people who are leveraging these things. They've run out of legitimate instances of widespread systematic oppression. And so they have to make up new categories, new classes of people who are supposedly being oppressed. Like say, for instance, the criminally insane, for instance, for example, cisgender, a person who agrees with the sex they were assigned at birth. These people definitely needed a word to describe their situation, (laughs) which is sarcasm. Uh, No, 
right? No. no. There's an avoidance here. To say cisgender, to use that term, it's just a way of trying to avoid admitting that there is such a thing as normal and that there is an original design which these other choices are acts of rebellion against or a rejection of. That's why cisgender and heterosexual or even terms that we're using all the time because the people trying to normalize, popularize these terms want you to subtly but surely come to the conclusion that, yes, it's all the same, right? It's all the same. No, there's the original design by God and all these others, all these other variations that God said to not do. If God said don't and you do, then you're disobedient and you're being wicked and you should expect judgment because judgment is coming and you should repent. You should agree with God that this is a wrong thing. Stop doing it. Start doing the right thing. Pursue righteousness. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Demi boy. Demi boy is a gender, apparently. That's a boy who listens to Demi Lovato. Sad. General Tso's, I'm sorry, Genderol, Genderol Tso's chicken, a delicious dish featuring mouthwatering morsels of deep-fried rotisserie chicken tossed in a sweet and spicy sauce. Not actually a gender. That, that one was made up. But actually, most of these are made up. So what's the difference, right? Who are you to say? Who am I to judge whether General Tso's chicken is actually a gender? Non-binary. <laughs> hates computers. That, that's a gender. That's for the gender when somebody hates computers. You just call them non-binary because, you know, computers work on binary zeros and ones. Get it? Anyway, long and short of it, the point being, there's a lot of confusion right now about gender and sexuality. And the confusion really actually is the result of very wicked people, very unrighteous, depraved people who hate God and they hate God's word and they want to expunge Christianity from the history, from the record of Western civilization, and they want to expunge Christian morality and ethics from all facets of society and, yes, even the private expression of individual Christians. That's the big idea. And this is not a recent thing. This is not a new thing. This is a very old thing. There is no new thing under the sun. But it's getting more aggressive. It's getting more pushy and more demanding and angrier and more threatening, particularly as it encounters, as this idea, as this theory and its proponents encounter resistance, there is a existential crisis. Because if the claims are true, and if you really believe that it's murder to tell somebody who identifies as this or that, or their orientation is this or that, if it's really true that you're murdering somebody if they go and kill themselves or harm themselves because you disagreed or you dissented or you challenged, you contradicted, well, then you're a would-be murderer. And so anything and everything has to be done to stop you. And if the words even are violence, and if your own lifestyle choices are violence, well, then everything is on the table to stop a would-be murderer. And if we believe in social justice, then you yourself don't even have to be guilty of any of the things which are said to be typical of somebody who opposes the normalization of homosexuality or the normalization of transgenderism. 
It doesn't even have to be true of you as long as it's true supposedly or it's claimed about your category of persons, that you're one of the oppressor classes. And there are a lot of people, a lot of naive, uninformed, yes, maybe well-intentioned, but poorly informed, poorly advised Christians and conservatives who, because they are not all that interested and they haven't been disciplined and they haven't studied this out and they haven't rolled up their sleeves, they haven't done the hard work to figure out where these ideas come from and where they're going and where they've been tried before after a fashion and what they will result in, there's a lot of attempts, a lot of efforts to placate and to appease and to negotiate and to compromise. And this is a classic tactic of the radical left that they'll demand the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then if you give them the concession of, well, how about just one star, right? We'll give you one star. Well, oh, we'll just give you the moon, but we, we have to keep the sun, right? We'll, we'll keep the sun. You get the moon. They'll take the moon from you, and then they'll come back tomorrow, and they'll ask for the sun and the stars. Or they'll take that one star from you, and they'll come back tomorrow, and they'll ask for the rest of the stars. And they'll just keep coming back. The more you enable, the more you flatter the basis for their demands by giving them concessions, the more you're actually contributing to this cycle. And so you actually are part of the problem the more that you give in to these demands because you're rewarding bad behavior and you're affirming it by rewarding it. So then you become part of the rebellion, part of the overhaul and the revolution when you give in to these demands. Or when it comes time to offer a corrective or to disagree, if you reserve the lion's share of your corrections and your disagreement and your criticisms for others who are opposed to the revolution regarding gender and sexuality and marriage and the family and the relationship of parents to children and children to one another and children to other adults that are not their parents and children to the state and the parents and married couples to the rest of society, when you are compromising with that revolution, you are actually helping to bring about that revolution. And so therefore, the consequences which are coming and are already here and are growing worse by the day, the consequences are actually in that measure, to the measure that you are compromising your fault. And this goes back to what Solzhenitsyn wrote in the last essay that he published or wrote before being exiled from the Soviet Union. Live not by lies has everything to do with the lies that we tell that give cover to and give some kind of a moral justification for the violence that is done against those who oppose the revolution, those who would not be cooperative with the revolution. The lies that we tell actually are what keep the whole thing propped up. So it's not they, it's not them, speaking of preferred pronouns, it's we, it's me, it's you who are propping up this revolution by our silence and by our acquiescence, by our flattering these things and claiming that that's what Christ has called us to. No, no, it's cheap grace. When you show respect for what is not respectable, what is abominable, you're actually pitting yourself against God and you're actually working at cross purposes to God who would have you call those people to repentance or if you can't call them to repentance at bare minimum, don't regard as respectable the things that they're doing, which are abominable. So if you can't say anything true about it, this would be a variation on the old line, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. If you can't say something true about it, then don't say anything at all. 
tell the truth, or at least don't lie. And if that means that you're a very quiet person, except among a select few family, friends, choose wisely who those family members and friends are that you can tell the truth with. You can do what's good with. That's what you have to do if you don't want to be part of the problem. If you want to be part of the solution, you're going to have to stop lying to flatter and keep the peace with because it's only making it worse. Now, on the bright side, if we will hold to what is true in what we say, if we will do what is good, and if we can build strong and supportive families, homes, communities, if we can do that, then it will go well. But we have to do that. And I'm sorry to say, and I'm sorry to forecast this, we're going to see a lot of brokenness, a lot of unraveling in proximity to us. And we're going to have to figure out how do we be truthful? How do we be kind? How do we be compassionate? How do we also be very clear all at the same time in establishing boundaries and in saying this is the expectation This is what we're going to be about. This is what we're going to be for. How do we reward what is good? How do we preserve what remains and strengthen what remains? That is going to be a challenge, but there's going to be a lot of opportunity there. There's going to be an opportunity to draw some very stark contrasts, and there's going to be a lot of temptation to blur the lines. We will see it go well for us and our families and our friends if we don't blur those lines. But speaking of, and I regret if this is uncomfortable, speaking of blurred lines and a temptation to affirm or condone or normalize what is not good. Luke Rosiak over at the Daily Wire has a report from just yesterday filed under news, poll numbers show a majority say that Virginia porn candidate, as she's being referred to, should drop out, including both Democrats and women. Constituencies Democrats count on to turn out on election day may go in the opposite direction on this issue, poll finds, and this might be a bit surprising, but it actually is somewhat encouraging, and I'll explain why. But first, Rosiak writes, a majority of likely voters think the Virginia Democrat who raised money by performing sexual acts online should end her political campaign, a new poll found. In the wake of the discovery of Virginia House of Delegates candidate Susanna Gibson's pornographic chatterbait account, 56% of surveyed voters in the state said the Democrat should drop out of the race, while 30% thought she should remain, according to the poll by Founders Insight and Coefficient which was shared exclusively with the Daily Wire. Among Democrats, 44% said Gibson should drop out, compared to 30% who said she should continue her campaign. The poll shows that core constituencies Virginia Democrats count on to turn out in elections. Women, black, and young voters signaled they may go in the opposite direction when it comes to Gibson. Women were significantly more likely than men to think she should drop out, with 60% of women saying she should quit. Now, why I say this is encouraging in its way, is setting aside for a moment that the numbers are as high who suppose she should stay in the race, setting that aside for a moment, 
it's going to be a very difficult to impossible thing for this candidate to win if those kinds of numbers vote for the other candidate or don't show up to vote for her. Otherwise, they would vote for the Democrat because of this. And if that means that we are going to see a cautionary tale put other congressmen, congresswomen, elected representatives, potential candidates for elected office on notice that you need to behave and also putting political parties, both the Republicans and the Democrats, who are the two viable parties for some time now, putting them on notice. You need to vet who it is you put forward to be your candidate and to represent your party, who you endorse, who you support. We will hopefully get a better class, a better character of representatives, a better representative government as a result. But in case you're not familiar, what is at issue here is that you have a Democrat candidate who was live streaming sexual activity, having sex with her husband while soliciting money, which, oh, by the way, is interestingly enough being considered for charges related to prostitution, even though it was her husband, is her husband. She was having these live stream sex acts performed with. Nevertheless, the solicitation of money for voyeurs to watch and to observe would quite probably put this in the category of prostitution. But then that begs the question, doesn't that mean that anytime somebody is making pornography, which is essentially what this was, aren't they, if there's going to be money at all involved, aren't they being prostitutes? Isn't that what that is? Setting aside that question as to the technical aspects of the law, what's not at issue as I understand it, is what she was doing with her husband. What is at issue is whether this in any way, shape, or form is conduct becoming of someone who would write the laws for your state or for your country. This kind of behavior is not at all acceptable. So what was the draw, right? What was the draw for the Democratic Party that they would say, oh yeah, you can be a representative? If I can venture a guess... The draw was that Susanna Gibson is an attractive woman and a professional, a nurse practitioner, a public health expert is how they are billing her on the website for her candidacy. In other words, she was a woman, is a woman, and a professional. So she's a working woman with an education. And if she was going to communicate and champion the causes that the Democratic Party cares about, that's all they needed to know. Woman, well-educated, a professional, will articulate our positions. Now, herein lies the question, shouldn't a Democratic Party, shouldn't a Republican Party, shouldn't a political party care about more than just whether a candidate is checking certain boxes? From an appeal standpoint, shouldn't they care more than just about whether she's a pretty face or whether she is a she, she's a woman? Shouldn't they care about more than just whether she would articulate their values? Shouldn't they also care about her character? Wouldn't they have advised her behind the scenes? Well, these days, 
These days, when the progressive party is really more transgressive than progressive, what otherwise would have been warning signs that she's not somebody you would want to run for Congress, what otherwise would have been warning signs, I'm sure were completely overlooked or they were taken as proof of her progressive sensibilities, her progressive bona fides. If there were some warning signs, they just said, oh, but she'll win though. And that's what we care about. We care about getting our candidate, our person into office so that we strengthen our hold on the political power. Now, if she is not a viable candidate and that a lot of voters in Virginia would say, no, she should drop out, would be encouraging. It's still very disconcerting that as high a percentage think she should continue. She should carry on. 39%. 39% say she should just carry on. Which is to say, if you have 10 people in your circle, at your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your list of friends and family, who say this or that on a certain issue or a certain question in the state of Virginia, four out of 10, who knows, right? Who knows where they're getting their values from and what's informing their sense of right and wrong, wise and foolish, righteous and wicked. Who knows? And this is also part of why you don't want a pure democracy and you don't want people having a free hand to just manipulate the sensibilities of voters to get their candidate into office. This is why we should be very concerned about how the corporate news media covers things and social media, how it curates the news and our ability to discuss freely issues very much at the center of our general welfare. We should be very concerned about how schools are messaging to young people what their values should be with regards to gender and sexuality. When you say it's all arbitrary and that liberation means no one will tell you that you have a responsibility to be a good steward of what God has given you, what he has created you to be, who he has created you to be, what he's created you to do, well then, you will get, in some cases, 39% saying, it's no big deal. Oh, that's funny. Oh, I like that. Oh, that reflects my values. Whoa. Wow. Four in 10. Four in 10, two-fifths are like, yeah, it's whatever. She should continue. She should carry on. That's not disqualifying. Then what is, right? What is disqualifying for somebody these days? What's disqualifying very often is to be a conservative and to say, this is not okay. This is unacceptable. Now, the end goal shouldn't be you destroy the people you disapprove of. Leave it to the wrath of God. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. And love mercy, Micah 6, 8. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. How are those for civic virtues? But nevertheless, you should say, some behavior has to be disqualifying. Some attitudes and some conduct has to be disqualifying. Otherwise, how do you know when you have a qualified candidate? We are an unserious people if we see that this is a educated, beautiful woman running for Congress and we say, I'll vote for her. Why? Because she's going to be all over the news for the next several years. And I don't want to look at somebody ugly. What? Or because people are privately doing things which are sexually immoral, which are sinful, wicked, wrongheaded, and they 
like the idea of those behaviors being normalized by someone being a candidate for high office and being elected. Oh, if they didn't suffer any penalty, well then, good, because that will help to establish a precedent for my not ever suffering any kind of a penalty. But then wait a second, what are we thinking about in terms of the practical effects of these things? What are we thinking about? Are we thinking about at all the effect on the welfare of society? We want somebody to get in there and we want them to write the laws. But wait a second, what if your example is doing far more harm to the general welfare of society and your communities than the laws are providing a benefit? What if the most impactful thing you could do for the general welfare of your neighborhood, for your city, for your state, for your country, would be to have good character, to be a person of good character with regards to gender and sexuality and marriage and the family and the rearing of children, working hard, being honest, doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with your God. What if that actually was the most helpful way for you to contribute to the general welfare? And then, going a step farther, what if, because you had been faithful in those things, you were entrusted in? entrusted with more? What if you were faithful with a little and you were entrusted with more and that were the basis and that was how we decided who's qualified? And what if actually that's really what's at issue here is you have somebody who is demonstrating unfaithfulness with a little and therefore they should not be entrusted with more. That's really what this is about. But then also, (laughs) this is by extension why you shouldn't be voting for Democrats generally because they float these kind of candidates. And they'll do the polling, and if the polling looks like they could win, they will rationalize and they will define down degeneracy. They will set the bar so low that people of decent character have to step over it or they'll trip over it or they have to go around it. It's disqualifying that the Democratic Party is promoting sexual immorality, not just saying we should be tolerant. No, no, they promote it. They rationalize it. They normalize it. They praise it. They celebrate it. In fact, they want to come after anybody who would say, don't, stop, no, watch out, turn back, repent. This woman should not be running in the first place. She should not have been encouraged to run in the first place. She should definitely drop out. But let's not just talk about this with regards to the Democrats. Let's talk about Lauren Boebert here in the state of Colorado. Not just a potential Congresswoman. She's an actual Congresswoman who recently won re-election. She's very much in the headlines for being removed by security from a public event that she attended with a man who is not her husband, but owns a very gay affirming bar in the Denver area, as I understand it. She's currently estranged from her husband. They're separated, but they're not divorced They're going through the process of getting a divorce, as I understand it. Lauren Boebert can be seen on security cam footage, vaping in the audience, singing loudly along to the songs, as I understand it, and groping and being very flagrantly groped in return by the man she attended this event with. And so at a certain point, the usher comes and asks both her and her date to leave. 
because they are behaving in a very inappropriate way for any member of the general public, much less for an elected member of Congress. They're behaving in a very lawless way. And Lauren Boebert is doing a tremendous amount of damage to the public welfare, to the general welfare of Denver and Colorado and the United States of America by relating this way in public or in private. Why do I say that? Because she's married to another man. This man is not her husband. And goodness gracious, even a totally godless person who does not make any claims to virtue or fear of God would know that you don't behave that way in public. You don't act that way in public. Was she high? Was she drunk? Was she both? Well, therein lies another problem because why is she getting so intoxicated with some guy who's not her husband? Those are all choices. Those are choices that if she says are not in keeping with her values, we should understand were preceded by earlier choices, which would have given an indication as to what her values are. Say, for instance, the fact that she's a woman and she is running for Congress in the first place. She can have an opinion. She can have all kinds of ideas. She can have all kinds of input. She can have all kinds of advice. Why was she running for Congress in the first place? Well, it's an obvious answer because Republicans wanted to demonstrate and to prove that the Republican Party is every bit as progressive, forward-thinking, modern, enlightened, empowered as the Democrat Party, so that the Democrats can't hold that over the Republican candidate. If the Republicans had run instead a husband and father, let's say, for instance, who was well-respected in his community for owning a business, being involved in church, being a man of integrity, managing managing his own household well, managing his own business well, rightly handling the word of truth. If, if they had run a candidate in this place, in her district, instead of her, and if the Democrats had run a young woman like a Lauren Boebert, then the Democrats would have said, ah, see, we're the party of youth. We're the party that empowers women. We're the party that gives voice to wives and mothers, and we need to have representation in Congress. But because Lauren Boebert was running as a Republican, or had Republican ideas, or had ideas that could be called conservative, the Republicans were very eager to put her forward as their candidate in this district. She had some name brand recognition. She was very outspoken. And they said, okay, well, you're very outspoken. You have a lot to say. So we'll put you in that spot because we think you can win. So they put her in that spot. And then what happens, right? What happens is what happened. And this is one of the big reasons why it should be men it should be heads of household. It should be fathers and husbands who engage in this business because what happens is you get a woman who's surrounded by men who are not her husband all day long. She's going to events and speaking, having meetings with men who are not her husband. She's going to have all these conversations, make all these decisions and listen and talk and get to know. And when she goes back home again, who's actually the head of the household? Her husband's not a congressman. She's a congresswoman. So who's in charge? Who's in charge of the household? Who is in authority in the household when she goes off to Congress and then comes back every now and then to check in and see how their sons are being raised by their father? When there's a microphone at a public event and she's there and her husband's there, who's asking her husband's opinion on things? Probably whoever wants 
to either make her look good because they want more Republican representation or whoever wants to make her look bad and they want to tear down Republicans and get more Democrats elected. They want a broad mandate. Well, what happens then, right? You get conflict in the home, conflict between a man and his wife because if he has any instinct to actually be conserving what would be a more traditional role and a God-ordained role for the husband in relation to his wife, in relation to their household, now they're going to have an arm wrestling contest and there's going to be words exchanged. There's going to be some ugliness. He's going to try to regain her respect, but then he's not going to be able to in relation to all these men that she's going to meetings with who actually have authority in society. And so now they have their conflicts and then they go their separate ways and then they come back together again and they have their conflicts and he is going to look for some outlet to feel like a man again. And so in this letter, Daily Wire News reports yesterday, he posts a statement, Lauren Boebert's husband does, where he appeals to the public to please have mercy on, show some grace to his wife. What he really means is, please stop criticizing her. Please stop talking about making her face some consequences. But wait a second, why? Are we talking about grace or are we talking about a refusal to bring any kind of consequence for bad behavior, for behavior and conduct unbecoming a member of Congress? Here we have Lauren Boebert's husband, and that's how he's referred to. Lauren Boebert's husband, Lauren Boebert's husband. And that's exactly the problem with women being the ones who are going to go out and do these things and they're going to run for Congress and run for governor and run for president and all these things. All of a sudden, their husband is the one nobody knows the name of. He's just Lauren Boebert's husband, estranged husband. So they're not even divorced. But he says, in part, I take full responsibility for my actions and I deeply regret the choices I made that led to the breakdown of our marriage. I was unfaithful to Lauren in so many ways. I should have always brought my best just as she did. My actions were selfish and thoughtless, and I failed to consider the consequences they would ultimately have on the person I hold dearest in my heart. This has been a devastating divorce that I hold all responsibility for. It upsets me that everyone believes she left me over fame or a new lifestyle. That is far from the truth. Then again, most of what has been said about our family is untrue. Another battle we have faced together for too long. Much of this is on me because the problem starts at the root. I am the root. Now, let's just pause right there and let's ask the question of what feeds into these. What can contribute? What can make easier or harder having a healthy marriage and a healthy home and a healthy family, one that endures, one that stays together and is to be commended? What goes into making it easier or harder? (laughs) If you send a woman off to go hang out with a lot of other men who are articulate, well-dressed, persuasive, charming, winsome. And she hangs out with them all the time and she's talking with them all the time. She's going to meetings and events and dinners and all kinds of things with them all the time. Even if you're right there with her, who's actually changing the dynamic in your family when it comes to influencing her thought processes and her values and her priorities? Probably those men. Probably the men that she's around all day. And what are you doing? right? If this man says, I am the root, this is all my fault. Hold on. Not so fast. Way to fall on your sword there, but hold on. Hold on, Lauren Boebert's husband. Why wasn't it you running for Congress? Why was it her? Well, a lot of this comes back to what is society affirming and what are the supposedly conservative people affirming? 
I mean, going back to this whole question of gender and sexuality and what is the difference really between men and women, boys and girls? Are there only two genders? Are there any number of genders? Is it entirely arbitrary? What preceded this chaos of two men can get married, two women can get married, a boy can become a girl, a girl can become a boy, what preceded all of it was the insistence that there's no meaningful distinction between men and women in the workplace, in the community, in church, in the home. And it started in the home, generally. Here's a novel concept. Have the husband of the outspoken woman, who has a lot of ideas concerning what laws should be written and repealed, have the husband of that woman run for office. How about that? Is there nobody else who has ideas? Or is this just a diversity hire? This is a diversity candidate who gets lots of encouragement, lots of chatter. Hey, you know what? If you beat them at their own game, Republicans could win and conservative ideas can win out. But wait a second. What are you conserving now? Yeah, great. You are now able to keep your firearms, maybe a little longer, a few years longer. But then as homes break apart and young men in particular grow up without fathers in the home because marriages end in divorce, and there's divorce and remarriage and divorce and remarriage. You're just kicking the can down the road because give it 10, 20 years, if we don't deal with the problem of fatherlessness, you're going to have a whole lot of young men who are persuaded by the influence of the women who provide their aspirational model. And then you're going to have a whole lot of other men who provide the statistics which are relied upon by the folks who want to outlaw self-defense with a firearm because you own firearms. Actually, arguably, the best thing we could do to defend gun rights would be to get married at a reasonably young age, stay married, have a whole mess of kids only after you've gotten married, train up those children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, instill in them discipline and model for them self-control and being under authority. And you model being under authority for children in the home in part by saying that the wife is going to be subject to her husband in everything. How is a wife being subject to her husband in everything if she's off deliberating with lawmakers and lobbyists all the time, giving interviews to journalists and the like all the time. At a certain point, what you get is exactly what we're getting. If you say it's all arbitrary and it's all the same. If the only transgressive thing today is to say Lauren Boebert should never have gone to Congress because she's a woman. If that's all that's transgressive anymore because, oh, that's sexist. Well, then y'all are kind of proving my point for me. How is my saying Lauren Boebert never should have gone to Congress in the first place and she would probably, probably not be on security cam footage being groped by some man who's not her husband very flagrantly for everybody to see if she had not gone to Congress? My saying what I'm saying will be put in a lot of people's minds because of where we're at now culturally It'll be put in the same category right alongside her indiscretion, or it'll be made out as being worse than her impropriety, her indiscretion. Oh, you're just piling on. Well, wait a second. How is it that simultaneously a woman is strong and powerful and capable and she can do anything and rule the world and all that, but then at the same time also you're going to say, oh no, but she's weak and vulnerable and oppressed and even just criticizing her actions here is going to crush her. If you actually believe the latter thing, she should not be the one out there going to Congress. She shouldn't be. And this is the other side of the coin for why we would say, 
that the Democrats should not be running candidates in Virginia who live stream sex with their husband for money. I mean, at least in that woman's case, it was her husband. But there are a lot of Republicans, a lot of establishment type Republicans, a lot of folks who think they're conservative, but they're really just trying to conserve their own wealth, their own status in the community. They have some generally fiscally conservative ideas, and they know they don't like the Democrats, but they're not really conserving much of anything because they'll just do what the Democrats do for red team if it means that they win. We have to measure what we're doing, what we're saying as either good and true or not against what God has said is good and true. And oh, by the way, if Lauren Boebert is married to, has been married to a man who has been unfaithful to her, that's very unfortunate, very unfortunate. And he is responsible for his actions, his behavior. But then, oh, by the way, I would refer you back to the biblical law regarding all of this. It's adultery if he divorces her for any other reason besides sexual immorality, unfaithfulness on her part. She should not be divorcing him, but now what's the priority? The priority is to hold on to this high office, being in Congress, listen to the Republican Party that put her forward and keep supporting her, listen to the folks who voted for her or her colleagues in Congress, listen to those folks, and the man will fall on his sword because this is actually his fault. He's trying to be protective after a fashion of his wife, but then this is all just the book of Judges, like we talked about every chapter, every episode that we went through, the book of Judges here recently before we got into the book of Ruth. What was it? There was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that's this too. Ah, okay, so I'm supposed to protect her and I made an oath, I gave an oath to protect her and provide for her. So I can just do that anyhow, right? Anyway, if Lauren Boebert's husband, whatever his name is, was being sexually immoral with women who were not his wife, that sexual immorality was sin. But biblically, the definition would not be adultery for that. This woman, Lauren Boebert, being groped and groping in return, a man who is not her husband, if they went away from that event and laid with each other after, and it's probable that they did, at least it wasn't live streamed, at least it wasn't in the middle of the crowded theater. But if they did that, then that was adultery, actually. Going through the process of divorce, we think in very Greco-Roman ways, but biblically, biblically, it's less important to us than it should be how these things are defined. And unfortunately, a lot of the same folks who would say, well, we shouldn't get political because we want to be about the Bible, right? We don't want to get political and pick sides there. The same folks, for a lot of the same reasons, I think, are liable to say, well, we don't want to get into what the Bible actually says in contrast to what our traditions and norms and taboos are on this question of marriage. You know, kudos to my friend and one of our pastors at Summit View, Paul Pavlik, for preaching a sermon here, oh, it's within the last year, going through the Sermon on the Mount at the part where Christ says, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, Whoever divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, if anyone divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, he has caused her to commit adultery. So Paul really wrestled with, okay, how do I communicate that 
to people who are divorced and remarried now or who have friends and family they've advised regarding divorce and remarriage. How do I talk about this wisely? But there are a lot of pastors that don't. There's a lot of pastors who read that passage and then they eisegete or they don't even admit that, hey, we're going to ignore that. We're just going to go with what's conventional. Well, that goes right back again to the Babylon Bee's Guide to Gender. Because if it's all arbitrary, well then, really, we should just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection of the dead, and that maybe that's arbitrary too. Maybe you just identify as somebody who's a Christian. Maybe you just identify as somebody who's going to be raised on the last day to eternal life with Christ. If it's all arbitrary, well then we are, above all people, most to be pitied because we say, one, that Christ is raised from the dead, was resurrected by the power of God, and for another thing, that all who believe in him will be raised on the last day to life everlasting. It matters that we would say, aha, see see who the Democrats are running over there in Virginia. And then meanwhile, in our own state, in the person of Lauren Boebert, we would say, eh, it's no big deal. It's fine. She's getting a divorce. And just watch, right? Watch and listen for people to say, you know, it's not good. But I've had a lot of friends and family who, in the middle of their divorce, they started dating people and seeing people and they were getting involved. And, you know, it happens. It just is what it is. No, no. Stop lowering the bar to wherever the lowest common denominator is. Stop defining down degeneracy. What's true is true, even if everybody is saying the opposite thing. What's good is good, even if everybody is doing the bad thing. Why? Because we trust in God. We put our hope in God. We don't put our hope in the candidacy of Lauren Boebert or any other man or woman in Congress, in the governor's mansion, on the city council, on the police force, on the janitorial staff. I mean, you don't put your confidence in those people to tell you by their own conduct what we should now normalize and rationalize and justify and excuse. You don't do that. Not unless you want to build your house on sand, which unfortunately is what a lot of us are doing and we need to stop. For our last story though, this episode, let's talk about some good news, some happy news, some positive news, and something of a counterfactual. The Daily Wire reports, Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis unveiled his energy agenda during an event in Midland, Texas on Wednesday, promising his policies will bring back $2 gas and turn the United States into the world's leading energy producer. DeSantis made the announcement after previously rolling out his plan to deal with the border crisis in June, his plan to fix the U.S. military in July, and his plan to make America economically independent in August. DeSantis' energy plan, dubbed Freedom to Fuel, includes six core components, including restore American energy dominance, save the American automobile, elevate evidence over ideology, reform environmental permitting, and end green lawfare, jumpstart critical mineral and federal land development, and build the most efficient, affordable, and reliable energy grid in the world. Quote, we have it in our power to reverse the country's decline and engineer an incredible comeback for the American people, DeSantis said at a Permian Deep Rock Oil Company drilling site. Quote, and one of the ways we need to do that is by achieving American energy dominance. End quote. Now, if you'll indulge me before we wrap things up for this episode, and I explain Again, going back to Ruth chapter 3, how I think Ruth chapter 3 gives us some very helpful 
tools for assessing where we find ourselves right now, individually, and then also corporately, how we evaluate and assess candidates, for instance, who are running for Congress or they're in Congress or they're running for president or they are president. Before we get into that summary, I will play for you cut one, the only cut, the only clip, the only audio for this episode of Ron DeSantis at this event in Midland, Texas. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. I'm running for president because our nation is in decline. I don't think that this decline is inevitable. I think it's a choice that we as Americans get to make about the right way forward. We have it in our power to reverse the country's decline and engineer an incredible comeback for the American people. And one of the ways we need to do that is by achieving American energy dominance. We know that Joe Biden has waged war on domestic energy production. Uh, He's made it a central goal of his administration to restrict investment, production, and transportation of reliable energy sources. Uh, Those policies have exacerbated the inflation that so many families have been laboring under for these last few years. The average American since Biden took office has lost over $2,200 in income through increased energy costs. And the average family has lost $7,400 in annual spending power due to the inflation since Joe Biden took office. Just by canceling the Keystone XL pipeline alone, Biden destroyed almost $10 billion in economic benefits and as many as 59,000 construction jobs. Raising the price of American energy makes every single thing we buy more expensive. That hurts American families. It also makes American industry less competitive, benefiting countries like China. Energy security, energy independence, and energy dominance is a key part of our nation's national security. We have the cleanest and most advanced oil and gas technology in the world. Instead of relying on American innovation and our environmental stewardship, the Biden administration has sought deals with hostile nations such as Venezuelan. That is unacceptable. Around the world, our influence is waning. Russia is exporting record amounts of energy. That is giving them the fuel to wage war in Ukraine. China has not only built up energy reserves in record amount, it has secured control of vital minerals and transportation depots all around the world. As president, I will restore America's energy independence. Uh, We will use our energy dominance to deny our enemies revenue. We will bankrupt their ability to threaten America, and we will help our allies become less reliant on our adversaries. You've seen the political left block infrastructure projects like pipelines uh, that now has resulted in much of the northeastern part of the United States relying on imported gas for their needs, including for a brief time, even from Russia itself, instead of the nearby energy superstate of Pennsylvania, uh, home to the Marcellus Shale. Instead of liberating the American oil industry to increase production, the Biden administration has throttled the industry and drained our strategic petroleum reserve 
to the lowest level it's been in 40 years. And they even sent some of it to China, of all countries. And then they begged the Saudis to keep gas prices low until after the midterm elections. We have it within our power to utilize our own resources so that we can lower gas prices for our own people here in the United States. We can lower costs for our own people here in the United States. We are not, when I'm president, going to beg foreign nations for oil. We're not going to send our reserves to hostile nations like China. We'll restore the strategic reserve as our gas prices come down, and we'll work with Congress to, to ensure they're only used for real emergencies going forward, not for self-created political emergencies in advance of a midterm election. Now, what has Biden done? The centerpiece of their agenda is called the Inflation Reduction Act. But even President Biden himself admitted that that name was absurd. It has not reduced inflation in any way, shape, or form. It provided massive subsidies for so-called green energy products. Uh, it will not prevent the worldwide rise of net emissions. In fact, Asia's increase in emissions will make up for 10 years of U.S. reductions in just two years. And while the left shuts down our plants and slows our oil and gas production, China is authorizing two new coal-powered plants every single week. Even worse, the Inflation Reduction Act doesn't have a time limit and doesn't have a dollar limit. This thing is really, really costly for the American people. One analyst estimated the subsidies could reach $1.2 trillion over 10 years. That is triple the original estimate. And oh, by the way, last time I checked, this country is in $33 trillion in debt. Maybe we should try to reverse that for a change instead of adding it like we were doing. The subsidies are going to drive inflation higher. Uh, it's not going to help with interest rates, and it's certainly not going to help with our unsustainable debt levels. Already, more than 60% of the $110 billion invested in these projects under the Inflation Reduction Act of the past year have gone to companies based overseas. And at least 10 of the top projects representing $8 billion in investments involve companies with strong ties to China. And that, my friends, that is what somebody who's running for office should be talking about. That's what we should be talking about. We shouldn't be talking about who groped Lauren Boebert and what her husband did and didn't do in their marriage. That is not a matter of vital national security. That is not going to put food on the table for my family and yours. That's not going to keep the lights on. That's not going to keep us in a home or expand our home as our family's needs grow. That is not going to to make us safer or more prosperous or more peaceful. Debating about, discussing, putting out polls, assessing and debating and deliberating about the polling numbers for some Democrat candidate in Virginia who some are saying might be liable for prosecution under laws against prostitution in Virginia, that is not going to bring the cost of groceries down. That's not going to help my family to get out of renting in perpetuity a house that is too small for our family, that's old, that it's difficult to get the property management company to talk to the owner, to get repairs made to, 
to get things fixed up and replaced on. It's not going to bring rents down because there are more homes available to rent relative to the people who are interested in renting a home in the area. It's not going to improve the job security and the income security. It's not going to help with anybody's retirement funds for us to be discussing and deliberating the salacious details of that. But this, this from Ron DeSantis, from a husband and father who stood by his wife and protected and provided for her and their children when she had a cancer diagnosis, all while being governor of the state of Florida, the fastest growing state in the union, presiding over economic growth and the administration of justice, protecting children, protecting families, encouraging economic growth, which families depend on in order to make ends meet and to be stable themselves. This six minutes thereabouts that I just played for you of Ron DeSantis speaking down in Midland, Texas, is what we need more of. We need less of women running for Congress and having broken marriages or doing nasty things and it being the talk of the town, the talk of the state, the talk of the country, the talk of the world. We need more of this. And oh, by the way, in contrast to who the Democrats like to field and carry across the finish line in the person of John Fetterman, Democratic senator from Pennsylvania. In contrast to that guy, Ron DeSantis knows when to wear a suit. And he's wearing a suit actually out on this job site down in Texas. He's wearing a suit. Why? Because he has respect for himself. He has respect for the voters. He has respect for the other people who've come out to hear him speak, who've given him an opportunity to speak. He has respect for potential voters, likely voters. He has respect for people who came before him, who served in high office, and he is asking for our vote. And I think we should give him our vote. But what he's talking about is numbers. What he's talking about is the economic reality and also national security. What he's talking about is the capacity for us to provide for and protect our families, our communities, our states, our country. And yes, for our allies to be able to do the same, which is a good thing. It's a decent thing. It's an important thing. It's an honorable thing. In fact, this is the proper role of government, to reward those who do what is good, to punish those who do what is evil. As he's explaining, this administration currently in office has been doing just the opposite, incentivizing and rewarding those who do what is evil in foreign countries, giving a free hand to China and to Russia to develop economically, to make gains geopolitically, and yes, actually, to do what is happening in Ukraine. When Russia is still able to sell energy to the world and use that as leverage and use that to fund their war machine, when Russia is able to sell energy to China and China is going to develop economically and build out the capacity to energize their economy and to grow their economy, all the while this administration shuts down projects and stonewalls projects that would allow for economic development, economic growth, the ability for husbands and fathers to provide for their families here in this country. What we have is exactly the opposite of what a president should be doing. And what DeSantis is proposing is exactly right. We need 
to develop our own energy. And oh, by the way, I'll just take this opportunity to share with you something mentioned in passing on a conference call I was on this morning for projects planning in the PRB, which is the Powder River Basin, which is Wyoming. Something mentioned in passing, I can't tell you details of what the company I'm working with is doing. That would be that would be wrong, right? That would be inappropriate. But what I can say is analysts forecasting $100 to $110 a barrel oil in the first quarter of next year, those analysts are being taken very seriously by the biggest oil and gas producers in the US and in the world. Which is to say, if you think that a gallon of gas is expensive right now, watch for how expensive it gets in the next three to six months. And who is going to reap the profits from that more expensive oil? It's going to be the Saudis and it's going to be Russia. It's going to be countries like Venezuela, which prop up their bad behavior around the world with the money that they make from selling energy, producing energy and selling energy. Meanwhile, here in the US, if we talk tough and yet all that tough talk is directed at hardworking men and women in our own country who want nothing so much as to be able to provide and protect. They want income security. They want job security. They want to be able to house, clothe, feed, and spend time with their families. We need somebody like a Ron DeSantis. We need more men like Ron DeSantis to make sure that those people who are being stigmatized, demonized, pilloried, and blocked at every turn instead are thanked, honored, facilitated, rewarded, praised, able to enjoy the fruits of their own labors. If that will happen, you will get more men doing the work that is rewarding. When work ceases to be rewarding, when it ceases to deliver a benefit or a profit because costs are just out of control, they're just far outpacing your ability to increase your profitability. And now you have to choose, do I spend any time with my family or do I choose to be gone all the time so that I can just barely scrape by and we can live paycheck to paycheck when those are the choices that are presented because of a combination of apathy and indifference and cowardice and malice and corruption. Watch what happens when you put somebody into a position of authority who's going to clean house and restore order and restore appropriate, God-honoring, God-ordained institutions to their proper role and function. You will get more men happily, gladly, gleefully rolling up their sleeves and getting to work and providing for families, and you will get growing families. Now, how does this relate? How does any of this, how does all of this relate to Ruth chapter 3? Simply put, the whole pretext for Ruth being able to bring food home for her and Naomi to eat, is that Boaz owns fields. Boaz has authority. Boaz has pull, he has sway, he has influence because he's a man of character and he's a man of means. If not for his having means and having good character, he would not be able to provide for Ruth. He would not be able to protect Ruth. And by extension, so also Naomi would be hopeless. But what does he do? He eats of his food and he drinks of his wine and his heart is merry and he goes to lie down and he falls asleep 
And here comes the young woman, Ruth, doing as she was advised by Naomi, uncovering his feet, lying down at his feet. He wakes up about midnight and is startled to find here is this beautiful woman. Who is it? I can't quite see. It's dark. Who's there? Who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she says. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. But what does he have to do first? One, he doesn't take advantage of her. But for two, what does he have to do before he can actually redeem the property that belonged to Naomi's husband, who is passed away and would have passed down to Naomi's sons, who have also died? What does Boaz have to do? He has to go and speak with this man who is a closer kinsman, who has a prior claim. He has a better claim on redeeming the land and taking Ruth as a wife. Boaz does not waste time. He goes and he handles it right away. He deals with it. We'll get into that in Ruth chapter four, but he deals with it. He handles it because you have to deal with the business side in order to be able to provide and protect. You say, oh, he wants to provide and protect. He's got good intentions. And if he had done nothing as a result of those good intentions to go and sort out the details of redeeming this land, then so also he would not have been able to provide for and protect Ruth or Naomi by extension. And this should set something of a pattern for us as to the sequence of events. Get means to provide and protect. Deal with business as it comes up in a straightforward, direct way. Then you move on the attraction that you have. Here's this woman. She's very available and she has just communicated. She's interested in me. Okay. Well, I'll be right back. I'm going to go and deal with this. Here, take this food, take it back on home. She gives her something to go home with. And he tells everybody, don't mention that she was here, which is probably to protect her reputation and his, but hers as well particularly if she's going to be his wife, and she will. What I hear in, in the segment of the Ron DeSantis speech from Texas that I played for you, what I hear is someone who highly prioritizes the ability of men to provide for and protect their families. He sees the value in that. He's affirming the value of that. He wants to protect that, and he wants to, insofar as the government provides anything, they provide stability. They provide some confidence to the markets by saying, this is going to be the plan. If you want to skate to where the buck is going, here's where the puck is going. These are our intentions. And if you can trust that, well, then the markets are going to respond accordingly. The markets will see an investment where an expectation is a return on the investment and confidence moving forward for years and yes, decades to come because you don't sink millions and billions of dollars into developing a field building out the infrastructure, building the pipelines, building the transmission equipment, building the refining capacity. You don't invest the millions and billions of dollars into that unless you're confident you're going to be able to run that equipment, run that field for years and decades to come and make a return on the investment. When you don't have that confidence here and some other country says, we're going to offer you the confidence over here, over there, we're low... We'll lower the taxes, we'll lower the regulatory burden, we'll welcome you, we'll court you, we'll promise, we'll commit to allowing you to operate here in perpetuity. Where do companies go? They go over there. They go to those other countries and they invest over there. And then 
We are the poorer for it. And then we act surprised. Oh, where's everybody going? Well, you taxed them and regulated them into that looking more profitable. And it is. If you don't like it, well then lower the taxes and decrease the regulatory burden. That's what Ron DeSantis is talking about. And men, take note. What he's talking about is your capacity to be able to provide for and protect a young lady. If you're not married and you're interested in getting married, this industry, the uncertainty notwithstanding, can be very lucrative. And if you want to settle down in one area and you want that play, you want to work in oil and gas, you want that play that you're working in to be a place you can work for a long time and earn a living and provide for your family and raise your family in, if you want that, well, then you're going to have to take a look at the political reality that makes that possible and the political reality that wants to destroy and abolish that. Right now in the state of Colorado, for instance, there is palpable hostility on the part of Democrats to the oil and gas industry in this state. And if they haven't completely shut it down, it's not for lack of trying to this point. Just over the border in Wyoming, if the state of Wyoming says, yeah, we'll offer tax breaks, we'll expedite the permit approval process, we'll work with you guys, we'll lower the regulations to where they actually make sense and they won't be punitive, they won't be hostile, malicious, they'll be reasonable, they'll be fair. What are producers increasingly going to do? They're going to jump the border. They're going to work up there. They'll drill. They'll frack. They'll build. They'll produce. They'll build out the infrastructure. And so also, they'll ask people to move at a certain point. If they can build that field out, they'll ask people to move up there. And people will. And people will. And they'll take their families with them. And they'll take their tax dollars with them. They'll take everything they've been contributing to your communities here in the state of Colorado with them, and they'll invest all of that up in Wyoming because Wyoming is prepared to create the conditions which make it possible to provide and protect for families, for breadwinners, for heads of household, for husbands and fathers, young men. Be careful who you vote for and know whether they care at all about your ability to provide for and protect some young lady you have your eye on and you're very interested in marrying, having a family with. You men who are married, even if you don't work in this industry, whatever industry you work in, I guarantee you, listen to me, what DeSantis said at the beginning of that speech is exactly right. Whatever industry you're working in, whatever your line of business is, all the materials and even the labor of the people you're hiring gets more expensive, the more expensive energy is. If all of our energy comes from other countries or it comes from renewable sources, which are not really renewable in the sense of what harnesses the wind and the sun and the power of the waves, all that has to be built. And the materials that go into that are expensive depending on supply and demand, manufacturing capacity if we're buying all that stuff from China. And also it doesn't last and also it's not scalable and also it's expensive to maintain relative oil and gas, or nuclear is also not a bad option. You voting for or being indifferent about this as an issue that would decide who you vote for relative those who want to shut down oil and gas in your state will make your businesses less profitable. And if you're on staff at a church or if you're 
on staff at a nonprofit, the donations that come in or the tithes and the offerings that come in are contingent on the people who attend your church being able to work and earn a living and have that discretionary budget. If they don't have the money, if they're living paycheck to paycheck, if they are scraping by, they're barely getting by when it comes to buying new shoes for their kids, putting food on the table, paying the rent, paying utilities costs, and then you pass the offering plate around or you go knocking on the door and asking if they'd like to make a donation, you send an email out, they're thinking, you know, hmm, you know, $100, I could give it to you, yes, and I approve of what you're doing maybe, I approve of your mission, but also that $100 could be a new pair of shoes for my kid who has been complaining about his toes hurting. That could be some new pants for my son who's worn holes in his pants. And we were waiting to get him some new pants because the electricity bill was 130% of what it was expected to be. Look at the story of Ruth. Look at what makes it possible for Boaz to provide and protect. He looks to his own affairs. He looks to the business of business, not instead of, but as a means to the end of having a family, having community. So should we. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Stay tuned. Coming up next in our next episode will be Ruth chapter four. You won't want to miss it. Lots of fun stuff, some funny stuff to unpack. But for now, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.